We used to live on a ship with 400 people, as many of you heard, and I loved our cabin. It was uh, absolutely tiny, and uh, it was five people living in this space that uh, prob- is probably smaller than some of your living rooms. Um, but then we came to Canada, and we started pastoring here. And I remember the first night that we moved in, uh, we didn't have a lot of stuff, um, but there were some essential supplies left in the house. And so we didn't have to sleep on the floor. We didn't have to eat the mice that may or may not have been running around. But what I do remember is that feeling of newness and that feeling of excitement, that, that sound of an empty house that is, that is not yet lived in. And the girls were excited because this was a new adventure for them as much as it was for us. And we didn't yet know what the future held. We'd signed up to serve at Cornerstone here for one year. Um, and so we didn't have a long-range plan at that point, but we did have a home, and it was ours. And of course, the first thing that you do when you move into a new home is you decide who's going to be living where. Now, we had more space in this new house. We had more space than we knew what to do with, but everyone needed a room in which to sleep, and we had to choose whether the girls were would would uh, would share a room, whether they'd have their own separate rooms, uh, in which case one of them would have to sleep there in the basement. Um, so, so choosing where folks would live, where we would sleep, was it was an important um, part of the process of moving into our new home because. Everyone needs a space that they can say is theirs, that they can close the door and say, this is my space and this is not your space. And then the girls can make their, you know, their little pictures as kids enjoy doing, saying, you know, you shall not enter, this is my space, you know, and all sorts of warnings associated with that. Um, you know, and the thing with, with everyone having their own room is that there's a clear marker, you know, there's a clear line in the sand, a boundary which says, this is mine, this is not yours, and the door's able to be closed and open. And it's important that we have boundaries, um, because where there aren't any, any clear boundaries, then we have absolute chaos, which is why it's important that we have these lines clear. And that's what Joshua chapters 13 through 19 is all about. It's about deciding who's going to sleep in which room. It's about making all of the boundaries clear. And so what we're treated to in these chapters is six chapters of making boundaries. And it's absolutely riveting reading. Let me give you an example from chapter 15, verse 12. And if you want, you can you can turn there. And this, and this is just one part of the six chapters. And this explains part of the territory of the tribe of Judah. It says this, starting in verse two, their southern boundary started from the bay at the southern end of the Dead Sea, crossed south of, of Scorpion Pass, continued on to Zin and went over, over to the south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it ran past Hezron up to Adar and curved around to Karka. Then it passed along uh, to Asman and joined the Wadi of Egypt, ending at the Mediterranean Sea. This is their southern boundary. Now, I don't know if, if you knew that there was a Scorpion Pass in the Bible, but there is, and uh, it made part of the southern boundary of the tribe of Judah, which is pretty cool. But that's not riveting reading. It's not exciting reading. And this is six chapters of this. 
So right after 12 chapters of warfare, of fights, of, you know, just um, insanity, excitement, chapter after chapter after chapter, including last week's montage, and I hope you've been working on your montage, um, but last week's montage where we learnt what happened in the central campaign, in the southern campaign, and in the, and in the northern campaign, battle after battle after battle, suddenly the brakes are applied, and now we're mired in a ton of logistics and boundaries. It's like church on Easter Sunday after the service. When the kids are rampaging up and down, you know, the property, they're finding their plastic Easter eggs and they're stuffing their shopping bags or their baskets full of the plastic things. Everything is high motivation, high energy, um, everyone's yelling, everyone's fighting, everyone's grabbing, everyone's looking, and then they make their way to the front of the church at the meeting point where the plastic eggs are emptied and returned and where each kid counts their sweets and their chocolate, where, where candies are swapped, and it becomes apparent that some kids got way more than maybe other kids. And so, so that, you know, that, that, that high, high, high energy of that chase suddenly stops and you've got to sort it all out. Everyone stops, everyone sits down. And that's kind of what's happening here. You see, because it's all well and good to have the, the, the run and the chase and the excitement of the Easter egg hunt, but without the time to sit down and sort it out, at the end of the hunt, everything is absolute chaos. And that's what Joshua chapters 13 through 19 are all about. It's the sitting down and the sorting through and the sorting out. And at first glimpse, like I said, it's pretty boring reading. It's not exciting, stimulating reading. You know, there's a reason why, why people memorize Romans chapter 8 verse 28, which says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. There's a reason that people memorize that verse. And there's a reason why people don't memorize Joshua 15, verse 9, which says, from the hilltop, the boundary headed towards the spring of the waters of Nephtoah, came out uh, at the towns of Mount Ephron and went down uh, towards Bala, that is Kiriath-Jearim. Because it doesn't make for easy reading. But if you take time to actually read through these six chapters, what I hope that, that you'll be surprised and that, that, um, that maybe you'll even love is all of the detail. You know, the fact that God in his sovereign plan thought that it would be an, an amazing idea to include in his words, which is useful for teaching and for training and all of that excellent stuff, that he would include this level of detail in his inspired words. Why is it important? Why does that matter? I think it's important because it shows that what we're reading is not a fairy tale. That this level of specificity is incredible because it means that you can actually trace all of the borders. And, 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 and when you look at the maps in the back of your Bible, maybe you, you have them which shows all of the 12 tribes. That information comes from what we're reading here. So it's really important. And what, what Joshua 13 through 19 really is, is a map of words. It's a written record of a geographic reality. And what it means is that this is not once upon a time in a land far, far away. This is not that. Instead, this is the allotment for Joseph began at the Jordan. 
east of the springs of Jericho and went up from there through the desert into the hill country of Bethel. It went from there, that is loose, crossed over to the territory of the Archites in Ataroth. It descended westward to the territory of the Japhletites as far as the region of Lower Beth Horon and onto Giza, ending at the Mediterranean Sea. This is not once upon a time in a land far, far away. So they're moving into their home. They are settling into their inheritance. And these chapters are all about inheritance, which is the title of our series. And this word inheritance is used over 50 times in these, um, in these next nine chapters. Now, Warren Wearsby, he, he, he points out that they get this inheritance not because they won, but because God leased it to them. He's their landlord. And their rent is a life of obedience. This is their rent. This is how they get to stay in that land, is living a life of obedience. And through a system of drawing of lots, they are assigned their land. You go here, you go here, it's all lots. But the Levites aren't assigned any land at all, but they're scattered throughout the land, um, throughout you know the people, to serve God and to worship him. He's kind of their, their kind of salt spread throughout the whole of the country. And it says um, here in these passages that, that they don't need land because God is their inheritance himself. So in the middle of this, of the parceling out of the land, of the saying, you move into this room, you move into this room, you share, you don't, you go up, says, you go down, says, in the middle of all this, there are a couple of moments that are worth us pausing over and spending a little bit more time with. And we're going to look at maybe two of them. And the first one is an example for us to avoid at all costs. And the second one is, is, is an example that we should grab hold of and say, that's how I want to live my life. So let's turn to Joshua 17, verse 14. Joshua 17, verse 14. It says, The people of Joseph said to Joshua, Why have you you given us only one allotment and one portion for, for an inheritance? We are a numerous people, and the Lord has blessed us abundantly. If you are so numerous, Joshua answered, and if the hill country of Ephraim is too small for you, then go up into the forest and clear land for yourselves there in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaites. Now the people of Joseph replied, the hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who live in the plain have chariots fitted with iron, both those in Bethshan and its settlements and those in in the valley of Jezreel. But Joshua said to the tribes of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are numerous and very powerful. You will have not only one allotment, but the forested hill country as well. Clear it, and its farthest limits will be yours, though the Canaanites have have chariots which are fitted with iron, and though they are strong, you can drive them out. Now, what we're seeing here is we're coming face to face with a complainer, with a whiner, and no one likes a complainer, no one likes a whiner, and in this case, we're told that it's the people of Joseph, um, it's the tribe of Manasseh and, and, the, tri- and the tribe of Ephraim, and, and they're getting into a pout because there's not enough room for them. Now, um, 
And so they file an official complaint. They say, the hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who live in the plain have have chariots fitted with iron. You can almost hear the whine and the petulance in their voice as they say that it's not fair. But listen how Joshua responds. He says this, you are numerous. You, you are very powerful. You will not only, you will have not only one allotment, but the forested hill country as well. Clear it and its farthest limits will be yours. Though the Canaanites have chariots fitted with iron, and though they are strong, you can drive them out. So what do you see here? First of all, we see Joshua reminding them of some facts. He says, he says, you are numerous and very powerful. He's saying to them, you can do this. He's saying, you will have this land, you will have this extra land, but you have to have to clear it. It won't be fertile lowlands, but it will be forested highlands. But the only way that you can make the most of this land is to go out there and clear it yourselves. He's saying, look, up, look, you have to buck up. You have to stop whinging. You have to stop whining. You have to do something about it. And unfortunately, I see the same tendency in my own life. It's this tendency to drift towards complaining. You know, the drift towards this spirit of entitlement that somehow I'm owed something in this life. That somehow this life that I have is not enough. Because what they say is, uh, in, in verse 14, they, they, they say, we are a numerous people and the Lord has blessed us abundantly. Now, this is really subtle, but what they're saying is that they're blaming God for their success. They say, look, we're, we have huge numbers and Lord, that's a wonderful gift, but it's your fault. And so you have to do something about it. They blame him for the blessing. It's a bit like, you know, um, you know, those of us who are raised in a big family saying, well, Lord, you blessed us with a big family. So many kids, it's wonderful, but our house is too small. And since you're the one who sovereignly gave us those kids, it's up to you to sort out a larger house for us, a larger residence. But of course, it's not just God who grants the blessing of children. I believe there are other parties responsible for the size of the family. There are other agencies at work, it's not just God's fault, if you're following me. And so the, and what we see here as well it, 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 is that the people of Joseph don't only blame God for the blessing, they also blame God for the fact that there are Canaanites still in the plains and that they're armed with iron-fitted chariots. These are heavy-duty tanks of, uh, of chariots. But whose fault is it if there are Canaanites still living in the area? It's their fault. They should have sorted it out earlier when the conquest was happening. Yet they didn't. And yet it's God's fault. And so when you look at your own life, when I look at my own life, when there is sin that I've not sorted out in my life, when there's sin that you've not sorted out in your life, it can get you down. Why hasn't God done something about it yet? Why am I still struggling with this? Why am I not freed yet from this? Why am I not yet released from it? There it is, wheeling around in its chariot, mocking me. It can be really, um, really dispiriting. 
Yet it's your fault. It's my fault. Because that cherished sin that you've allowed to roam free in your life represents some sort of a, some sort of a gap between this life that you now have and the full life that Christ has that he wants you to have. And, and, and here's how it works is that Satan and ourselves, it will, it will make that sin look massive, look intimidating, look scary, and it will make the Lord look small. Which is why we have, we have this response, this response, um, which says, you are numerous. You, you are very powerful. You can drive them out. We have to hear that. You are numerous. You are very powerful. You, you can drive them out. What we want is we want a God who will somehow maybe flick a switch and he will transform us from being miserable specimens to land conquering heroes of faith. But what, what the people of Joseph needed was to reach down to find that axe and to pick it up and to walk up into the highlands and to clear that land themselves. That was their responsibility. And what they needed was to reach down and to pick up that sword and to go against the enemy and the foe that they should already have won against earlier. And so God calls us um, really to do the same. He calls us to quit making excuses and, and, and blaming God for whatever straits we find ourselves in. And he calls us to pick up the normal tools of obedience, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And he calls us to the really boring work of living faithfully one day at a time, one tree at a time, one enemy at a time, as we clear space, as we, as we make space, as we move into that space, as we claim it for him. That's what he, he calls us to. Last week I, uh, I, I mentioned that, that hymn that I learned when I was a kid that said, each victory will help some other to win. And the same thing is here that we need momentum. We need one tree at a time. We need one, one chariot at a time. And if you add together all of those trees and the chariots, what you have at the end of your life is a life of of, of trust and obedience that is broad, that is spacious, there's room, and it glorifies God. You see, Psalm 18 verse 19 says this, and it, and it shows us God's intent for our lives. It says, he brought me into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And I love this wonderful concept of this spacious place that God leads us into. But here in Joshua, it's us humans who have to do the clearing, knowing that the Lord is with us every step of the way. So what we learn from the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh is this. Stop whining, start working, and enjoy the inheritance that God has won for you. This is as simple as it gets. Stop whining, start working, and start winning. So if these folks are an example of how to do it wrong, I now want to show you someone who did it right. So let's turn a couple of chapters back to chapter 14, verse 6. Chapter 14, verse 6. That says this. Now the people of Judah approached 
Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. Yet my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. And here he's referring to the spies. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance. There's that word again. And that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, verse 10. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Verse 13, then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and he gave him Hebron as his inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. And then there's this nice little postscript here. Hebron used to be called Kiriath Arba, after Arba, who was the greatest man among the Anakites. Then this last line, then the land had rest from war. Now, I recently turned 38, and Wendy and I went away to, um, you know, for our 14th anniversary and for my 38th, 8th birthday. We went up to Quebec, and we had a lovely time. We were in this, um, little room in a hotel, and if we angled our heads just right, we could look out and see the Chateau Frontenac. We weren't in the Chateau Frontenac, but if we looked very hard, we were able to see it. And we walked a lot, and we went to the Montmorency waterfalls. We rode on a horse and a carriage, and we ate some amazing food, um, et cetera, et cetera. It was a really special, wonderful time. Now, a couple of weeks earlier, um, when I was still 37, a young pup of 37, Wendy and I were talking, and uh, and our conversation really move, moved on to deep things. And I think that what started us talking was the fact that we're, we're nearing 40 years old and we're living in rented accommodation. And I voiced out loud, should we think about maybe buying something or renting something? And then this got us onto the conversation of what does a successful life look like? I mean, how do you know if you're living a successful life? How do you know what scale would you use to measure success or lack of success? And at that moment, I had a sort of an epiphany, or at least a fresh thought. And and what that looked like is this. I realized how short life is. And it, it was not something that I had in my mind. It was something that I felt in my heart. Life 
is so short. And we all hope that our few years on this life matter uh, because we all want our lives to mean something and we all want our, our, our existence here on earth to mean something. Um, but when you think about it, life is so short because now I'm 38 and if I live for another 38 years, then I'll be 70, 76. Thank you. And 76, that's an okay life. Um, but then you think about how long this life after this life lasts. And it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. 38 years, 76 years versus eternity. And at that moment, what I had was not a panic or a worry. It was a peace. Because I don't have to worry about whether I'm renting a house or whether, whether, whether I own my house. Because at the final, you know, the final thing, the only thing that matters is whether I've served my short years on this earth to worship God, to serve Him, and to walk after Him in a life of obedience. That has to be all that matters. That has to be the only thing that really matters. And so when I read these words of Caleb, they encourage me and they convict me and they grab me and they take me by the shirt and they shake me and they say, listen up. Because what he's saying is this, here I am today, 85 years old, and I'm still as strong as on the day Moses sent me out. And I'm, and I'm still as, as ready to go out to, there into battle like I was then. Now give me this hill country. What a contrast he is with the whiny self-entitlement of the people of Joseph. He's a senior who's ready to go out into battle again, who's rejecting any concept of the, of the, uh, or who's, re, who's rejecting any concept of retirement or, 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 or that he has one foot in the grave. He's ready. He's, he's out there. He has his sword ready and his axe ready. And, you know, we look back at when he was only 40 years old. Again, a young pup of just 40 years old. And he was, he was one of only two people in Numbers chapter 13, verse 30, who had the courage to say, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Only he, he, he and the namesake of this book actually said that everyone else absolutely chickened out. And now here he is, 45 years later, saying, I'm just as ready to go up into battle as I was then. Now, you need to give me this hill country. This is a man of faith. This is a man who has his eye still on the prize. Now, in the UK, we have a suite, and it's called Rock. And it looks nothing like rock. It's pink, and it's long, and it's round. And the only thing that's like it and actual rock is that it's really tough. If you, if you eat it wrong, you will, you will knock off a part of your tooth. And wherever there is a seaside, you know, somewhere on the coast of the UK, you can get rock. And so what you do is you go to the beach, 
You go into the freezing water, you eat your packed lunch, you look for crabs in the rock pools, and then you buy the mint-flavored rock, and you eat it slowly on the way home. That's what it's like in the UK. Now, the thing about each piece of rock is that it has the name of the town where it's from stamped on it, marked on it, but not just on the ends, but also in the middle, all the way through. You can chop it wherever you want along its length, and there you can read the name of the town where it's from. And I don't know how they do it. It's a mystery to me, but I think it's awesome. And so here with this man, this man Caleb, we have these two insights into his life. One is age 40, one is age 85. And at age 40, he says, we can do it. And at at age 85, he says, we still can do it. You see this wonderful courage and this confidence stamped all the way through his life. Wherever you chop it, you can read it. And that's why he says the same thing age 40 as what he says at age 85. Because this is how he's been living his life. He's walked through all of the desert. That's not his fault. That's their fault. But he said, we can do it. He held on to hope. He held on to faith. And now he's there once again saying, now's the time. You have to give me my hill country because I'm ready. He wasn't stronger than everyone else. He, 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 he wasn't more of a warrior. But he was someone who kept his eyes on the Lord and he kept clinging on to him, holding on to the promises. And so even after walking around in the desert for 40 years, more um, nearly half of his life now, even after that, that waste of time, when, 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 when the whole, when millions of people let him down, he kept holding on to God. He trained himself and he kept training himself and he held on. And so we read in the book of First Timothy chapter 4, it says this, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And it's why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe and then we turn to Acts chapter 17, where it, where it says this, Acts 17, verse 24, it says this, Yeah, the God who made the world and, and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he, may, he, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land and he did this, this is the key part, he did this, verse 27, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. 
For in him we live and move and have our being. And, and what we see in Acts chapter 17 verse 26 is that God marked out our appointed times in history and the boundaries of our lands. And why did he do this? He did this so that we might seek him and reach out for him and find him. This means that the Lord has you exactly where you are so that you might reach out for him and find him. This is his, this is his strategy. This is what everything is aiming towards. This is this, you know, this is what's happening throughout all of human history. And so what I believe this means is that God, knowing what sort of a person you are and what sort of a person you would end up as, is that God sovereignly and wisely, he placed you right here, right now, so that you would be in a place to seek him, to reach out to him, and to find him. This is the level of the detail that that this word says that God is working at, so that you can have the joy of knowing him. And having having visited over 50 nations myself and having worked for four years on a ship of 400 people from 60 countries, I can safely say that God is drawing people to him across the world in miraculous ways, regardless of where they are born or what hand they are dealt with in life. And so what this means is that the only choice left for us is whether we're going to be like the people of Joseph who are complainers, who are whiners, who are expecting God to hand us what we think we are entitled to on a silver plate, but we're not willing to work at the boring work of living an obedient life, of clearing the trees, and we're not willing to look at the foes in our life, our own sinful um, yearnings and the work of the Satan. We're, we're not willing to look at those and to fight them. Instead, We want to live our lives as excuse makers. So that's one choice. The other choice is, are we like Caleb, who's serving God where he was placed, who faced many disappointments and struggles and many challenges, but like that piece of rock, you can cut him through at any point of his life, and he's someone who says, with God on our side, we can do it. And that's why at age 85, he was still doing it. He was still fighting. He was he's still saying, you give me the hill country that the Lord promised me. And lastly, he says this, you yourself heard that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Now remember that, the, that, that these folks, these Members of the tribe, the, these, these people called Anakites were the ones who were so huge at the beginning that they made the members of the Israelites feel like tiny little grasshoppers. That these were the people that made, made the Israelites, um, reject, yeah, the promise which the Lord had for them and, 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 and led them to wander in the desert. For a whole generation. But now this 85 year old man is saying, enough is enough. They've had this hold of fear over us for way too long. I'm going to deal with it. You hand me my axe. 
for the trees and my sword for the Anakites, and you just let me at it. And, you know, for me, I realize that way too often I'm like the people of Joseph, but I want to be a Caleb. I want to have a warrior song in my throat, and I want to know the thrill of a short life that's expended for God, that, that I know that I'm placed where he has me so that I may find him and I may help those around me find him. And what I want is to live a life where I'm filled with joy in the face of hardship because I'm living on mission. And what I want is that the only thing that matters for me is the name of God and the glory of God and the message of the cross. You know, that's what I want as the only thing that matters in my life. I want, you know, to be a man who is in his old years, maybe 85 years old if the Lord lets me live that long, and who has the spiritual metal that he can say to his enemies, come on and have a go if you think you're hard enough. Who's not afraid of the hard work of self-mortification. But I can only be that 85-year-old man now, then, if I'm this 38, if I'm that same 38-year-old man now. I have to be clearing land in my life now. I have to be going against those foes in my life now. I, I have to be taking out that sword of the Spirit every day now. I have to be wading into battle and fighting against my old self now. I have to be taking out those strongholds and the Anakites in my life now. And so do you. Otherwise, both you and I will be 85-year-old whiners. I have to be saying, the Lord helping me, I will drive them out. My desire is that you can walk up to me on any given day. You can cut me in half. And you can read the words of Joshua 14, 14, where it says, this man follows the Lord wholeheartedly. And I want this church here in North Gore to have more and more folks who are saying, the Lord helping us, we will drive them out because we are a church that's following the Lord wholeheartedly. And so the good news for you and for me is that this day is, you know, it's a perfect day for us to stop whining, to start working, and to enjoy the inheritance that God has already won for us.